That's the first thing, therefore. History as a discipline enters. Secondly, we have so-called scientific theories about origins. And this was not serious until Darwin. You've always had evolutionary theories since pre-Socratic times. But around Darwin's time, about 120 years ago, we had this arrogant claim on the part of people who alleged to be scientists that they have scientific certainty. They admit it's not absolute. They're so modest and unassuming that, it, well, to the extent that Newton's theory is a verified hypothesis, so Darwin's natural selection has that certainty, too, that there were no, man did not come ready-made from a creative act of God, but there was this gradual mutation and natural selection, and after, and we had polygenesis. We had hundreds of, of, of animals, of, of monkey-like animals, and finally Homo sapiens emerged and made a few grunts, and after a couple of million years, he went to Oxford and, and, be, and evolved into Bertrand Russell or something like that. So, so this is the sense, therefore, and these people mean, they mean to have an input in your biblical exegesis. I've claimed they had far too much of an input, that a man... Who, who studies many scriptural languages, just as he's about to interpret the Bible, he looks over his shoulder and says, but I've cleared it with the linguists and the philologists, but I haven't cleared it with the Darwinians. And he's nervous. Now, as a result, therefore, many Christians are extremely nervous about biblical exegesis. The Protestants above all. And they tend to yield the whole problem up to scholars and experts because their whole point is, I can't, I can't even read English. Many people will say this honestly. I, I'm in remedial English. And I'm supposed to learn Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and, and, and this and this. And I'm supposed to know Darwin and I'm supposed to know history and I have to know about Josephus. Forget it. I'll just go to the scholar. So in the moment someone puts out his shingle, I am a biblical scholar, and has his doctorate from a prestigious university, and he's supposed to know all these Semitic languages, in that moment, he has a captive, frightened audience, especially including if his audience are bishops. Most bishops have an inferiority complex about their own education. They got run through some Roman seminary and were given a doctor of divinity, and some of them couldn't even understand Latin. The lectures were in Latin, and they just barely got through with it. So they're not about to protest when a scholar who knows all these Greek things and archaeology and science and all that, when he tells them what this and this means, oh, yes, sir, oh, no, sir. And we're always in awe of these biblical exegetes. I want to make a very important point now before I move on. It's bad enough that biblical exegesis is so difficult that it's going to cause tremendous confusion for us Catholics. But this confusion is absolutely fatal to Protestants. You see, the Protestants boasted ever since Martin Luther they don't need a church. They don't need tradition. They need only the Bible, says Luther, sola scriptura. Only scripture matters. No church, no tradition. Church and tradition are inventions of this harlot of Babylon, the Roman papist church. Well, let it be. But then I say, if you, your entire faith rests on that book, you are in trouble, my friend, because, first of all, where did you get the book? Most people think they got it in the 
the publishers. That's where the Bible came from, the publishers. Secondly, if the, if, if the book has got this difficulty that you need to know six Semitic languages and science and history and architecture and all this other stuff, well, and then if all your experts contradict each other, all I say is good luck, friends. You can give all the crusades you want and tell people to come up and believe on the Lord Jesus, but you're going to get 250 versions of the Lord Jesus contradicting each other. So the Protestants have destroyed themselves because they've based everything on the Bible and then they've allowed the Bible to get in the hands of the experts. There are a few exceptions. The evangelicals are fighting back and it's a great tribute, especially in England. And also there's some good evangelicals, fundamentalists in America, but they're pay playing a defensive game because their principle leaves them totally vulnerable to the skeptical attack by biblical exegesis. I would therefore say that the past hundred years have all but destroyed all the liberal Protestant mainline churches, including the Lutherans, that the Lutherans are the most superbly uh, dedicated Protestants. I'm, I, I'm not speaking of Anglicanism because one doesn't know whether to call them half Catholic or half Protestant, and some of the great evangelicals come from Anglicanism. Anglicanism has this ability to be all things to all men. But Lutheranism, not so. Lutheranism has far greater discipline. And in the moment the German rationalists, starting in Germany, starting with Hegelian scholars who, who, who updated and demythologized everything, that destroyed mainline churches. In America, the mainline Lutheran church is a disaster. You have the Missouri Synod, which is a small minority church, which is superb. They have somehow resisted all of this stuff. But it's inevitable. You build your entire edifice of faith on the book, and the book is at the mercy of scholars. And therefore, these scholars are right. These scholars arrogantly going around telling bishops and pope and faithful, you need me. I, uh, I know the optative case. Uh, I know all these Greek uh, roots and all that. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And if these people say there are only two persons in God, well, I guess that's the latest insight in philology. We're at the mercy of a biblical theorist like that. We Roman Catholics, may, it, may God be blessed for his mercy, we do not say sola scriptura. This is one of the good points of Vatican II. In fact, all of Vatican II could be in, uh, interpreted in a rather advantageous way if we had Catholics interpreting it instead of heretics. But this, this point, de verbum, this constitution on the word of God, uh, has some beautiful points. And one of them is this. We Catholics claim our faith rests not on one point, the book, but on three points. It's like a, 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 a three-pointed platform, a stool with three legs. Destroy one of the legs, the other two topple over. And those three legs are the Bible as the word of God, Holy tradition, which is the memory of the church. And third, last but not least, the living teaching authority of the Catholic Church. We have, therefore, we claim the Catholic Church is a continuation of a body, hierarchically established, set up by Jesus Christ, with a memory. 
The apostles had a memory of the events themselves. These apostles consecrated their successors. The memory was passed on. That's holy tradition. They wrote some of it down in books. The church itself, by her living authority, decided which books were of God, which books were spurious and apocryphal, and the church insists she has the authority, and she alone has the authority, to tell us what these books mean. This is what is called the analogy of faith. Uh, you might know that I am going through England, and if you say who sponsors me, well, the general group bringing me over would be Profide group and also the Pro uh, Ecclesia et Pontifice group. And uh, it's thanks to them and that I am taking this tour, but my immediate contact is John Edwards to my right here, who has a tape apostolate, Christus Vincent Productions, and John himself got started because he came to America and saw our apostolate in audio tapes called Keep the Faith. Now I say this as a big commercial. There is a scripture scholar in America, the most marvelous man I've ever met, a holy priest. He knows 11 languages. He reads Hebrew the way I read English. And of course he was thrown out of the seminary. He believes in God. I mean, he believes in, in the literal interpretation. So he is a parish priest in a cornfield. He's in the middle of a cornfield in Wisconsin. He has 1,200 farmers for his parishioners. His name is Father Richard Gilsdorf. And I think John carries a few of his tapes. I urge you to get his tapes on form criticism and the analogy of faith. And he has about 30 titles. Everyone, and he doesn't speak like a deep German scholar, which you need to know five languages to understand. He speaks like a parish priest teaching youngsters about the Word of God, but he knows what he's doing. And his favorite word is the analogy of faith that the Bible, it's not as if you come upon a book the way you come upon Homeric manuscripts, and then using all the tools of secular disciplines, you analyze it, tear it apart put it together again, subject it to this or that critical tool. No, he says the Bible is part of this threefold root of our faith, and they all agree with each other. That word analogy of faith is not too happy a word, but it means that what the Bible says, the church says. What the church says, tradition says. What tradition says, the Bible says, that it's either all three or none at all. So you need a living teaching authority to give you the Bible, interpret the Bible, and clarify what is of God and what is not of God. That is the, and this is the source of our great Catholic serenity. And we are entitled to that. And we're being robbed of it by these wolves who destroy or repudiate the church as teaching authority, repudiate holy tradition, and on the mere basis of a few philological tools, some of which are not quite honed, uh, they are telling us whether Christ rose from the dead or the Blessed Virgin was a virgin or Mary uh, gave birth to Jesus or whether angels appeared and whatnot. Sooner or later, therefore, we Roman Catholics can expect a clear de fide statement clarifying this biblical mess. In other words, if you wait long enough in the Roman Catholic Church, when an error or a heresy gets bad enough, it is definitively denounced and swept away. And it protects the little ones who cannot protect themselves. The church has been our mother, and by clinging to the mother, she keeps off the wolves. But it takes about 20 years, sometimes 100 years, before the fence is erected. And meanwhile, the wolves are having a great feeding. 
They're feeding on lambs and they're feeding on sheep. They're destroying faith. So we have this confidence that eventually all of these heresies will be demolished with the solemn assurance of the De Fide uh, 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 teaching of the church. But until this happens, I beg you to believe me that errors based on biblical criticism are sweeping through seminaries, graduate schools, catechisms, and these errors will still be protected because the author is a professor with prestigious degrees. Raymond Brown allegedly has prestigious degrees. I don't know how prestigious they are, but he has a doctorate in biblical studies. He probably knows three biblical languages, let's say Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and perhaps Latin. He, he no doubt knows Latin. He's very articulate. And his point is, he got his doctorate in 1955, say. Anybody who opposes Raymond Brown, if he had his doctorate prior to 1955, Brown says, oh, he learned the old way. It's just as if you were studying physics. Let's put an analogy. Let's say you got your degree in physics in 1930 and you got a real good degree in 1930, but then you meet a nuclear physicist who just came out of Cambridge with a degree in 1982. And he's telling you something about quantum mechanics, and you stand up and you oppose him, and someone says, when did you study physics? Well, 1922. Well, you idiot. How could you possibly know anything about Max Planck or about this or this or this? Now, I agree. In science, it's quite good because science does really have revolutionary changes every 20 years. Well, Raymond Brown looks at the calendar, and anybody who opposes him, Raymond Brown looks at the calendar, when did he get his PhD? Uh-huh. Too late, too old, too old, too old. You aren't with it. Now, he tells that the bishops and cardinals, this Cardinal Sheehan, it's actually Archbishop Sheehan, um, no, no, it's Cardinal Sheehan of Baltimore, the previous ordinary of Baltimore, who's a scripture scholar. And he opposed Raymond Brown, but, and you tell that to Raymond Brown, he says, yes, but this wonderful, kindly, wonderful cardinal, he got his doctorate in those days. And yes, that's right. So therefore, you can. So that's why I like Father Gilsdorf. He got his doctorate after Raymond Brown. Okay, I mean, so therefore, he's immune. I mean, according to, according to Brown, Gilsdorf is clean, you see. But it's, it's, Gilsdorf still believes in God, though, which, which is the problem. Now, what I say is that we have to be alert to what is being said in scriptural exegesis, its implications, its valid points, and its dangers. There sometimes is something good. Uh, for example, I think the new translations of the Bible are generally stupid. And some of them are consciously heretical. When they absolutely do not want to translate the word anima in the Vulgate to soul. They don't want soul. My being proclaims uh, uh, how great God is. And there are all kinds of double talks and so on. But every once in a while you have better translations in, in the New American and the Jerusalem Bible so that we should not blanketly say it's all wrong. It takes a lot of patience and a lot of, of humility and prayer. But all I'm asking is that we have caution. Because there's an all, this is the easiest way to be seduced into heresy because it's not over... You don't have arrogance. You simply say, I want to know more and more about my faith. You go to a biblical workshop. You listen to someone who knows a little Greek. And you, as I say, most of us have trouble with English. Hey, oh, yes. Oh, yes. And little by little, your faith is drained away. And you wonder when. 
And then, of course, catechetic suffers. And then, of course, holy math suffers, because one thing builds on another. I come now to my second major point. I want to correct errors in biblical exegesis today, the liberal Protestant era and the Raymond Brown era. But before I do, I want to note three aspects of scriptural studies. And I got this distinction from my dear friend von Hildebrand. I got my doctorate under Dietrich von Hildebrand. I claim he's the greatest thinker in the church since Cardinal Newman. He wrote three books on the present crisis, most of them out of print, Trojan Horse and the City of God, Celibacy and the Crisis of Faith, and Devastated Vineyard, which is his best. I'm trying to get that third book back in print. The Trojan Horse has a marvelous chapter on biblical exegesis. I forgot the exact title. And when Hildebrand notes, there are three different, when you say someone's a scripture scholar, there are three different problems with being a, uh, that the scripture scholar could possibly investigate. The first, we'll say, is the scientific aspect of scripture, using science in the broad sense. In other words, what is the correct text? Given that you have all these manuscripts which disagree among one another, which manuscript is the most authentic? So that would be, uh, and that's the work of a long time, the chronology of the text. Which manuscript was written or copied before which other one? It's a very difficult problem. The meaning of idiomatic expressions, like, eye of, like the camel passing through the eye of a needle. What is this eye of a needle? There have been difficulties on that. When I read that passage that it's as difficult for a rich man to go to heaven as a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, well, my wife used to sew, and the sewing needles, even in America, we do things big, but they're not that big. So, so even a gnat can't get through that. But I've heard some scripture scholars say that that means a little gate, that there was a gate on the walls of Jerusalem, and that it was an idiomatic expression. You had to really stoop down low to get through the gate. Now, we need, we need scripture scholars to tell us that. When you deal with this first aspect, here are some of the things to remember. It is scientific in the neutral sense of the word. In other words, it's a real secular discipline of involved here, knowing, uh, knowing how to find authentic texts, knowing how to date things, knowing what idiomatic expressions are. One has the same problem with Dante's works, with Homer's works, Virgil's works, Cicero, and the whole bit. So that's it. Secondly, it can be done by commissions and teamwork. In fact, you need it. Horace says, Ars longa vita brevis, art in this general sense of study, is long, life is short. And one man might devote 50 years to Greek manuscripts, and he'll just say a little bit. But his work can be carried on by his disciple and so on. Therefore, it makes perfect sense to say we have a commission of scholars who know Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic and who are going to investigate these idiomatic expressions or who are going to have textual analysis to try and date works. It's quite, quite useful thing. There's no reason in this aspect of scripture scholarship to ignore Protestants or Hebrews or even atheist scholars. My son has his undergraduate degree in Latin and Greek from a marvelous teacher at Fordham who's an agnostic. She doesn't believe especially in anything. 
but she's a superb Greek and Latin scholar. So my son learned from her. St. Jerome studied Hebrew from a Jew. The Jew didn't believe in Christ. But thanks to the excellent teaching that Jerome got from the Jew, Jerome was able to translate the scriptures. So if you say Catholic scholars are working with Protestants, Jews, and atheists on biblical studies, okay, if by that you mean textual dating and so on, idiomatic expressions and so on. The second thing with respect to biblical studies is that aspect wherein you now have a text presented to you by the church. And this is the way you and I grow up. This is the way Protestants grow up. This is, this is the kind of naive approach to Scripture which we Catholics have a right to have because our church protects us. The Protestants have no right. They simply assume it, but they take the right anyhow. Namely, you present me with the Bible when I'm a youth and you read the, the Beatitudes. You read, the, you read uh, uh, Jesus' sermon. You talk about, you hear about the miracles and, you, and some of the words are so magnificent they change your life. One passage of scripture changed Ignatius, uh, uh, changed uh, Xavier, Francis Xavier, he was a, uh, an arrogant student at University of Paris, and St. Ignatius said, what does it profit a man if he gained the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? Now, Xavier didn't say, well, give me the Greek text, give me this, give me that. No, no. The words spoke to him and changed his life. He became one of the greatest missionaries of all time. And hundreds and thousands of people, when they meet the word of God, the word of God pierces them, as scripture itself says, like a two-edged sword. And your lives can be changed. Now, we have, once the word of God immediately speaks to you, you, you are invited to meditate prayerfully on these words, on the text, to draw inspiration and lessons from them, and as the scripture itself says, to draw new treasures out of old. What a beautiful challenge to us that we take these words which have been read in the churches for almost 2,000 years, which have been read by saints and sinners, educated men and not, and women, which have guided the lives of millions and hundreds of millions of people, and we ourselves can draw new treasures out of old. Now, this feature of biblical study the understanding of the deep meaning of certain passages has these features. Number one, only individuals can do it. We don't want committees, experts. No, the prayer, and it has to be a gifted individual, please. And it has to be an individual who meditates on his knees. These are the people who draw new treasures out of old. Forget the Greek roots now. Forget which text is which. That these people with a heart full of faith and love, taking the word of God and letting it grow in their heart, prayerfully meditating on this word of God, they draw new treasures out of old. And it is far more precious. If you say there are two rooms, in this room are the biblical scholars telling us which codex is more reliable and what the Greek root is. And in that room, there are saints, peasants, educated, not educated, who, given the text which Holy Church presents them, with certain ambiguous uh, passages, no doubt, and they pour forth their meditations on that text, which room is more precious? That room, obviously. We need the scholars. 
will we'll gratefully listen to any emendation to the text, but we Catholics especially know they are not about to dictate to us everything about the Word of God. They can clarify in a scientific way certain problems of textual uh, difficulties and translations and the like. But those two points, now let us leave aside, the key point in biblical exegesis is neither of those two the historical, the the scientific analysis of which texts, or the saintly meditation on the meaning of the text, you have a third ingredient in biblical exegesis, which is philosophical assumptions. And that's my field. I've never pretended to know Greek, Hebrew, Latin. I just barely read a little Latin. But I do pretend to know something about philosophy. And Here is where all the trouble started in Germany, and most of the trouble starts with Raymond Brown and company. Suppose you have an atheist who's a scripture scholar, and that's no longer a wild guess. It used to be the only people interested in scripture were those who believed the word of God, and they were so in love they wanted to trace down every root of scripture. But thanks to Bauer, and, and, and these German scholars on, on the continent, and then to the French scholars, that uh, many people, I'm going to get my degree in biblical studies. Uh, well, do you believe in the Bible? Well, of course not. I'm an atheist. But I happen to like Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic and all that stuff. And suppose you have an atheist, therefore, who really has all these degrees, who knows the languages, who knows even the sources. He quotes St. Jerome and all these other, Basil and Augustine and everyone else. Someone like Nietzsche one of the most educated men of all time, and a vicious atheist, a tragic atheist. But I don't say, uh, would to God that every scripture scholar were as educated as Nietzsche and intelligent as Nietzsche. They're usually far more moderately educated. But supposing this man investigates, he says, I want to apply my learning to the Bible. Okay. And he reads the story of Moses and the Ten Commandments. He reads that Uh, Moses went up to the mountain and God spoke to Moses and God spoke from a cloud and thundered forth and when Moses came down from the mountain he had, his face was shining so much they had to put a veil in front of it and he presented the tablets of the commandments to the people. Now you and I believe something like the literal truth. I hope you do. I hope you believe there really was a man, Moses, who really went up to a mountain and who somehow had a tremendous communication with the living God who exists, and that Moses then wrote on tablets the commandments. I hope you believe something like that. Well, this man, obviously, God doesn't exist. uh, By hypothesis, he's an atheist. But he's quite impressed by the sincerity of Moses. Obviously, the man who wrote the book of Genesis was not trying to, to be cute. He was really trying to say something. So this atheist comes up with the brilliant hypothesis that Moses was in the state of psychological exaltation. He studied depth psychology, and he studied these enthusiasts and these zealots. And it's known to modern science how people have a fixation. God's telling them to kill their son. God's telling them this. Well, that's our clue. So that this poor man, Moses, perfectly sincere, mind. In his exalted state, he thought God was speaking to him and he wrote the commandments. Now, friend, when this person writes his learned treatise, if he's a German, it'll take six volumes. 
on the real meaning of Mount Sinai and the commandments, his treatise on the exaltation of Moses, the psychological state, the trance, the this, the that, this has nothing to do to this man's scholarship. It's based on his philosophy. It's not because he knows Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic that he's coming up with a deep science. It's because he cannot believe in God. So in the moment you hear God in the scripture, he's got to come up with a modern psychological or physiological theory to explain. 